The South African Institute of Race Relations was founded in 1929 to advance the ideals of liberalism in South Africa. This includes non-racialism, the rule of law, a market economy, freedom of expression, and property rights. The Institute continues to advance these ideals today, and I thought that this would be an opportune moment for me to bring in my senior colleague, Mr. John Ken Berman, to discuss his own involvement with the Institute, as well as the history of the organization, which he led from 1983 to 2014. John Ken Berman, welcome to Solutions with David Ansar. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. So, John, you used to be the CEO of the Institute of Race Relations from 1983 to about 2014. Uh, you were succeeded by Dr. Franz Grenier, and he, in turn, has been succeeded by uh, John Endres. But I wanted to just take this opportunity to reflect on your time with the Institute and some of the work that it did and the projects that, that you led. And, uh, but before we do that, I wanted to perhaps go back further in time and explore also your career pre the Institute. And I have here before me a copy of your book, Between Two Fires, which I think is an excellent distillation of the work that you've done over many decades. But for those who haven't read it, and I'd encourage them to read it, perhaps you could uh, start with just the beginnings of your career as a journalist and, and what got you interested in politics in South Africa in the first place. Well, I came from a very political family. My parents were both members of the Liberal Party. My father had been national chairman of the War Veterans Torch Commando in the early 1950s. He was a very keen federalist. And I became a journalist uh, soon after finishing university. And I worked for the Financial Mail for six years from 1973 until 1979 and then I resigned and spent four years doing freelance work mostly for foreign newspapers and then I joined the institute in 1983. So I was a journalist effectively for 10 years. And a large part of your work as a journalist was trying to understand South Africa's labor market at the time, which is obviously subjected to a number of uh, draconian uh, racial laws. Uh, what did you discover throughout your, your coverage of the South African labor market in terms of uh, the apartheid system and some of its more deleterious effects? Well, I was very lucky to be appointed labor editor of the Financial Mail shortly after I joined that paper. And it was at a time when South Africa's labor system was in a state of uh, turbulence. A whole lot of workers, mainly in Durban, many of them in the textile industry, had gone on strike at the end of 1972, early 1983. These strikes were all illegal. And the first interesting question was, what would John Forster's normally belligerent government do about this. And to everybody's amazement, uh, Mr. Forster removed the prohibition on strikes by African workers. So this was the beginning of a process of liberalization of the South African labor market. So I was very fortunate to be able to write about labor at a time when things were beginning to change. And one had after the strikes, the rise of the independent 
black trade union movement. Of course, there were anomalies. Black workers were now able to strike lawfully, but they weren't allowed to bargain lawfully through the official industrial relations system. And we at the Financial Mail pointed out the absurdity of this policy and in due course, there were further changes, one of which was in 1979, the removal of the color bar entirely from South Africa's industrial relations system so that African workers could bargain collectively lawfully on the same basis as white colored and Asian or Indian workers had long been able to bargain. The other very important development was that John Forster as prime minister in 1973, that very important year, also made a speech to the Motor Industries Federation. And he said that the National Party government would no longer stand in the way of any upward movement of African workers on the jobs ladder, provided it was done on an orderly basis. Doing it on an orderly basis was, of course, code for provided the registered white unions agreed. But there was a, an increasingly serious labor shortage. So I was able to write also about the very important process of the erosion of the industrial color bar. So that it was very, very interesting. Uh, 10, 11, 12 years before Mr. de Klerk's liberalizing reforms in 1990, the South African industrial relations system had become a non-racial affair. It was a very important phase in the gradual liberalization that happened under national party rule. And you later wrote a book called The Silent Revolution, which was essentially the apartheid system became unenforceable and the, the movement of people into urban areas, uh, the labor pressures that you spoke of, uh, the job shortages and the need for, for labor just simply overwhelmed the, the kind of ideological convictions of the National Party at the time. Absolutely. We always made the point, uh, I on the Financial Mail and then later at the Institute, that the process of liberalization wasn't something that the National Party decided upon as a matter of policy. It was a process forced upon it by the increasingly difficult challenge they faced in trying to enforce the apartheid policies. And one of the most significant reforms after the liberalization of labor law was the abolition of the past laws in 1986. And the then uh, state president, uh, Mr. P.W. Buerta, frankly admitted, he said that these laws were being repealed because they were unenforceable. So what one saw here was the National Party being forced by circumstance, by organized black opposition uh, in the labor movement, but also by the actions of ordinary people voting with their feet against the past laws by moving from country to town in search of better health care, in search of jobs and so on. And the government pragmatically recognized the need to change the law 
to cater for the new reality that had been created on the ground by the actions of ordinary people in their millions, because an average of 721 Africans were arrested over a period of 65 years under the past laws, according to police figures. There was massive defiance of these laws, not for political reasons, but because people simply wanted to better their lives. And the National Party, to its credit, recognized the need to change the law to cater for this new blossoming reality. Right, John. So let's fast forward now from the 1970s to the early 1980s. As you mentioned, uh, the apartheid system was starting to creak and reform was being almost foisted upon the regime. So what were the political circumstances under which uh, you uh, took over the, the helm at the Institute, but also if you could tell us you know, how that came about, how, how, how were you offered the job as well? Well, I was uh, bullied by a number of friends. I got a bit bored with being a journalist writing mainly for foreign newspapers. And I was persuaded to take the job of director as the CEO was called then at the Institute. And I hadn't realized, although I'd been a member and a member of its board for some years, I had never fully realized the extent to which the organization had lost its way. And I certainly never realized the desperate financial situation that the Institute was in because my very first meeting as CEO, the then chairman Ernie Wenzel informed us that we were probably breaking the law by carrying on the affairs of a bankrupt organization. And I had to do something about this. So I did the logical thing. I went to see our longstanding supporters at the Anglo-American Chairman's Fund and there, Michael O'Dowd, the chairman of the Chairman's Fund, agreed to give us some bridging finance to help us stave off bankruptcy. We had to get matching funds from other people, which we were able to do. We mortgaged our building to the bank in order to get some cash to pay salaries. And we brought in a management consultant. And we took the organization apart with a strategic planning committee set up by the board and it was decided to do two or three fundamental things. The one of which was to restore research and public policy work and involvement in the battle of ideas to pride of place. It had always been the key focus of institute activity. The second was to go out on a fundraising drive in the private sector ourselves, market ourselves, rather than rely on a couple of people in business to lead an annual pledge campaign. So we had to do the marketing of our organization ourselves. And the third thing was we took a look at a whole series of projects, probably a dozen or 15 of them, that the Institute had started over the years. Uh, using spoken and written English was one of them, Operation Hunger, bursary programs, arts and craft shops in various centers around the country, uh, 
uh, a penal reform league, an unemployment project, a youth program, oral history, and so on. And all of these activities, all of them worthwhile as far as they went, meant that we had become, as Michael O'Dowd at Anglo told us, a holding company of worthy causes. And he said to us, you people are not going to survive until you decide what it is you exactly are going to do and what you want to do. These projects were collectively losing money and also causing us to lose focus. So we hived them off, all of them except the bursary program. We hived them all off under various separate trusts and they went off and the Institute was able to concentrate again on its historical activity, which was research, fact-finding, public policy work, making submissions to government departments and engaging in the battle of ideas. And prior to your arrival, so you mentioned that the original purpose of the Institute was to focus on research and understanding the socio-economy of South Africa and essentially documenting also many of the abuses that uh, were perpetrated by uh, the various uh, white minority regimes. Uh, so 1929 was when the Institute started. Uh, what was the, the, the kind of the genesis of the Institute? Um, if we just take a moment to reflect on, on the history of the organization. Well, starting in the early 1920s, uh, there had been set up in various parts of the country what were called in the terminology of the time, joint councils of natives and Europeans. And these were discussion groups where black and white people got together to talk about common problems. And this happened outside the normal black-white interface, which was the master-servant relationship. And the Institute was essentially set up as a secretariat to promote these joint councils and also to promote and foster them. And in the end, I think something of the order of 80, 8-0 were established. And the Institute eventually absorbed all of them so that when I took over in 1983, I think there were only two of them left because the Institute had taken over that work of promoting dialogue across the color line, working for peace, goodwill and practical cooperation as the Articles of Association put it, and then doing research into the sorts of issues that were likely to cause conflict between the races and what could be done to improve race relations. So a research unit was set up to look at the impact of discriminatory laws, as well as at means of overcoming the problems that they caused and enabling black and white people to meet on a basis of equality and mutual self-respect, which of course in those days was pretty rare. And did the Institute confine itself narrowly to this mission of fostering harmonious race relations and, and research? Or was it much more of a political kind of entity? How did it engage politically with uh, the establishment and the powers that be at the time? Well, I think the Institute initially had possibly a rather naive view that you could talk about um, living standards, living conditions, where people worked, 
how they worked, what jobs were available to them, what education was available to them, how welfare systems worked. I think there was a, a view that you could deal with those kinds of issues without getting involved in politics. But the Institute very, very soon discovered that none of these issues could be dealt with without some attention to the politics of the situation. In 1951, for example, the Institute uh, asked for a meeting with the new Minister of Native Affairs, as he was called, Dr. Hendrik Verwoerd, and a deputation was put together to go and talk to him because we were worried about deteriorating race relations as a result of some of the laws being put onto the statute book. And Dr. Favoit said, well, the black members of the delegation must come in the morning and the whites in the afternoon. <laughs> so there was a, a meeting with a minister which was now subject to apartheid requirements. And of course, the Institute said, well, we can't segregate our delegation like that. So there was no meeting with Dr. Favoit. And I mean, he obviously later became prime minister and was the chief champion of the, the Grand Apartheid Project. So, I mean, how did uh, the Institute, you know, position itself in relation to, to the National Party um, and also in relation to other political entities uh, like the Black Liberation Organizations as well as the, the Liberal Party? Well, if you look at the Institute's uh, research and the, the documents that were published, they were written largely from a broadly liberal perspective, not a party political perspective, but broadly liberal, in keeping with the more liberal people in the then official opposition, the United Party, uh, in keeping with the views of people in the Liberal Party, in keeping with the views of many people in the ANC at that stage, uh, some of the black consciousness organizations, and also in later years, the Progressive Party, which is now the Democratic Alliance. But the Institute itself had no party political affiliation. Our members and office bearers, I think, were largely liberally minded, but their political allegiances were of no particular interest to the organization. And I'm sure we had among our members people whose political allegiances were pretty much on the whole political spectrum, with the exception, perhaps, of the far right. And what do you mean when you say liberalism? Because that's obviously a term that has contested meaning for, for many people. But what does the, the liberal tradition mean to you in the South African context, John? The key objective was to, was to overcome all of the apartheid laws. And these were chronicled in great detail in the annual surveys, which the Institute published from 1947 onwards, strictly factual objective accounts of what these laws entailed, what their impact was on the people that were subjected to them, and the submission of memoranda, research documents to various government departments, emphasizing some of the deleterious consequences of these laws and seeking reform of those laws. So the key thing was 
getting rid of apartheid legislation. But that also meant looking at the role of the state. And of course, apartheid meant not only discriminatory laws, but massive interference by the state in every single walk of life. So you had racially discriminatory legislation and you had a government which told people where they could live, what jobs they could perform, whether or not they could belong to this or that organization. Everything was subject not only to racial discrimination, but to an increasingly officious, interfering, bureaucratic, Leviathan state. So getting rid of apartheid meant not only getting rid of the racial laws, but cutting back on the role of the state and reducing it to its essentials. And that has become the key objective of the Institute in more recent years as well. And part of that involves also endorsing the idea of free individuals participating in an open market as well. So uh, having economic agency, not just uh, personal liberty. I think the Institute always took the view that economic and political freedom were two sides of the same coin, that if a person was free to vote for whichever party he or she chose, uh, free to express whatever opinion uh, they wanted to express, why should they not be free to decide on what sort of jobs they could take, what sort of wages they were prepared to accept, and so on. And we looked at international research, comparative research from around the world, which showed us that, generally speaking, the countries that were economically free were also countries which had higher rates of growth, lower instances of poverty, and lower unemployment, so that people were more prosperous when they were both politically free, living in democratic societies, and economically free at the same time. Okay, John, so now you've taken over the reins at the Institute in 1983, which was the year that I was born, so I don't remember it very well. But uh, at the time, the tricameral parliament had been introduced by the Boerter government in an attempt uh, to reform the political system. Uh, but there was also a kind of growing uh, insurgency against the state and the uh, kind of local insurrection was beginning to, to gain momentum. Could you paint a picture of the political context at the time in the 1980s when you took over the Institute? Well, the tricameral parliament was introduced. Uh, the Institute took uh, a strong position uh, on the tricameral parliament. We saw it as an attempt by uh, the whites to consolidate white colored and Indian political organizations, leaving the African majority out in the cold from a political rights point of view. So that was a very negative development as far as the Institute was concerned. But at the same time, the ANC launched its People's War, and th that meant the intensification of violence from the mid-1980s 
80s until the ANC took over power in 1994. Something over the order of 20, 21,000 people lost in conflict during those years. And the People's War had two essential components, the one of which was to make the country ungovernable until such time as the ANC could take over power and supposedly restore law and order. That was the first objective. The second objective of the People's War was for the ANC to eliminate all its black political opponents. I think the organization correctly surmised that there was no longer much fight left in the white majority, that even the supposedly belligerent Boerter government was interested in some sort of political reform. But the ANC wanted to make sure that in the power struggle which it launched, it would emerge triumphant. And that meant declaring war on the Encarta Freedom Party, but also on the various black consciousness organizations uh, led by Azapo, but not confined to Azapo. So this period of people's war was essentially an objective on the part of the ANC to eliminate its political opponents among blacks. And to a very large extent, it was successful in that respect because the Encarta Freedom Party and the black consciousness organizations were, were very, very seriously weakened as a result of the people's war. One of whose important consequences was a huge propaganda victory for the ANC in successfully convincing large numbers of people, both inside South Africa among whites and the outside world, that all the violence was to be blamed on a third force supposedly orchestrated by the National Party government. Well, we did a great deal of research into the causes and origins of the violence and the third force theory was almost entirely nonsense. There were, of course, members of security forces that were involved in violent action that has been exposed in various newspapers. But even today, the great majority of uh, white people are ignorant of the murderous people's war that was directed at the ANC's black opponents. Black people in the townships, of course, were well aware of what was going on, but they were terrified of talking about it. So one of the things the Institute did was to organize a conference called Mao Maoing the Media, where a number of promising, a number of prominent black journalists came and talked about the intimidation that they were subjected to if they wrote about the the violence perpetrated by the People's War. Necklace executions, assassinations of policemen, of local councillors, assassinations of the ANC's political opponents, and so on. And at the time, there was a lot of pressure on liberals who had historically advocated for a peaceful transition, the rule of law, and uh, respect for uh, dialogue over violence. A lot of those liberals then started to uh, come under immense pressure to fall in line with the, the ANC agenda, seen as a, the only alternative 
um, and somewhat of a government in waiting. And uh, Jill Wenzel wrote the book, The Liberal Slideaway, about uh, many of those liberals who abandoned those principles uh, in favor of a, a kind of a politically expedient support of the ANC. Uh, could you explain how that impacted on the Institute itself? Because as you've explained, the IRR became very critical of the ANC. What was the fallout of that within the kind of broader liberal community in South Africa? When the United Democratic Front was formed in 1983-1984, it was pretty clear to us at the Institute that this was in practice an internal, a domestic front for the ANC. There was huge pressure on all liberal organizations to join the UDF. We at the Institute resisted that. We didn't want to be aligned with a front organization for any political party. But there was huge pressure on us to align ourselves with the UDF. And we resisted that. And that made us very unpopular with uh, many organizations that were affiliated to the UDF. That was one issue. The second issue was that many white liberals, many of them very comfortable in uh, suburbs in Santon, Hurlingham, sometimes with their children at private schools or even at universities in the US, thought that white liberals had no business criticizing the strategies that black political organizations used in order to liberate themselves. And we said, no, there's a huge amount of violence going on in the townships. And just because it's being perpetrated by a black organization does not mean that liberals should keep quiet about it. We were always severely critical of uh, the National Party government, detention without trial, uh, the sharpful shootings, the violence that had been used by the state in suppressing the Soweto upheavals in 1976. Why must we now keep quiet when violence is being perpetrated by the ANC and its allies? And that willingness to criticize necklace executions to criticize the assassinations of black policemen, uh, to criticize the assassinations of black town councillors, of black political opponents of the ANC. Our willingness to criticize that and to produce all the statistics about the violence earned us a huge amount of uh, animosity <laughs> um, in newspapers that didn't want to print stories about violence perpetrated by the ANC. And in many cases, they still don't. Um, so we made a lot of enemies. <laughs> that, that was inevitable, but uh, we have no reason. We had no reason then to regret it. And a number of uh, people who had been members of the Institute uh, for some years, especially in the Western Cape, decided that uh, they no longer wanted to be associated with an organization that was so critical of the ANC, um, to which many of them, even today, still turn a blind eye when it comes to the ANC's violence and atrocities. Yeah, and we saw recently in various media outlets, some of those uh, IRR alumni 
uh, openly criticizing the Institute today. And it seems that a lot of that criticism harks back to that schism that occurred in the 1980s. Yes, I think it does. I, I, I think some of the people that are criticizing us today were the people that were criticizing us then. I remember a very prominent member of the uh, University of Cape Town uh, once warned me, in, in fact, it was uh, a former vice chancellor of UCT, Sir Richard Late. It was a friendly warning. He wasn't threatening me in any way. But I went to Cape Town to talk to some of the institute uh, committees down there. And he said to me, you must remember when you come to the Western Cape, this is UDF country. And he laughed. But it was, it was quite true. Um, there was very strong support in the Western Cape and at the University of Cape Town for the United Democratic Front. And uh, that support uh, meant that they were very uncomfortable with the stance that the Institute was taking. And obviously, uh, some of them are still a bit angry with us 25, 30 years later, how, however long it is. Okay, so a lot of those early warnings about the character of the ANC as a movement have been vindicated uh, by the last three decades or so of the ANC in government. So the ANC takes power in the first democratic elections in 1994. Uh, what was the stance that the Institute took in relation to that new government? In 1990, um, shortly after Mr. Mandela had been released, he made a speech, I think, uh, from the balcony of the City Hall in Cape Town which was televised live around the world. And I remember Pierre and I watched that on television when he promised or urged an intensification of violence. And our hearts sank, as did those of many people, because here was uh, Mr. Mandela on the day or the day after his liberation, now talking about an intensification of violence. And that is exactly what happened. We, in 1994, as the build-up to the handover of power uh, was taking place, warned that uh, revolutions don't always result in liberal democratic outcomes. And we pointed to the, the USSR, where after 1917, oppression was much worse than it had ever been under the Tsars. The same was true after the French Revolution in 1789. And we said, well, South Africa needs to be on guard that this revolution that we are experiencing does not go awry. And of course, there were all the warning signs the dishonesty of the ANC's campaign uh, in blaming all the violence on the state when it knew perfectly well that the main cause of the violence was its own people's war and revolutionary strategies. The beginnings of the dishonesty with the arms deal in while Mr. Mandela was still president. All of these things that have come to pass subsequently the seeds were all there. They were all there in the, you could argue from the 1960s onwards when the ANC turned to violence uh, and shortly thereafter decided it was going to 
lift any prohibition on targeting civilians. Uh, it was supposedly going to only blow up pylons, but I remember, I think it was our chairman, Ernie Wenzel, who'd been a vice president of the Liberal Party at one stage, had said, if you start with blowing up pylons, you will soon start blowing up people. And the ANC's attacks, assassinations in the People's War, its murder of civilians and so on, we all saw these signs there. So we were not complacent when the organization assumed power in 1994 that South Africa was now going to have a happy liberal democratic outcome. We thought there were very, very good reasons to be apprehensive and to be on guard against this organization, given its history, given its ideological leanings, and given the strong influence of the Communist Party, which in common with all communist parties around the world is utterly ruthless. It doesn't believe in the truth. It doesn't believe in human life. It doesn't believe in any kind of individual freedom. It believes only in the increasing power of the state. And that's what we see with the ANC as it is in power today. All the signs were there before the organization came to power. Yeah, and part of the hubris of the National Party regime was banning those liberation movements, sending them uh, abroad into exile, into the awaiting arms of the Soviet Union. And during the Cold War, uh, the Soviet Union was always on the lookout for allies as well. Um, so supplied the ANC very generously uh, with training, weapons, and kind of ideological cover as well. And, you know, 1969, I think, was a seminal year in the history of the ANC, the Morogoro Conference in Tanzania, where the ANC officially adopted the policy of the National Democratic Revolution, uh, which is socialist and statist in character, as you've described. Um, so I think we, we, people, I think, tend to, us to underestimate the influence of socialist ideology on the ANC. Oh, I've no doubt that they do. I remember uh, being a guest speaker at a conference at the Johannesburg Country Club uh, organized by the F. Edith Clerk Foundation uh, several years ago. Um, the conference was on the National Democratic Revolution. And I talked about the influence of the Communist Party because the National Democratic Revolution is a communist idea. And a very prominent businessman in the audience got up and accused me of uh, seeing reds under the bed. And I said to him, well, the reds aren't under the bed. They're actually on top of the political heap. I think there's still a reluctance on the part of the business community and on the part of the South African media, not only the mainstream media, but also uh, online media, various websites and so on. They don't want to recognize either the prominence of the South African Communist Party or the importance of the National Democratic Revolution. Uh, people talk about state capture, but the real capture that happened in this country, I think was in 1960 when the ANC uh, was effectively captured by the South African Communist Party 
and of course by Umkonto Wesizwe. Yeah, the narrative of capture, I think, is very convenient to deflect some of the criticism of the movement and its character to say, well, no, there was this external force, this malevolent force that, that hijacked this otherwise benevolent movement. Well, David, unfortunately, the National Party mismanaged the whole business from the start. Uh, if, you, if you think back to the defiance campaign in the early 1950s, they introduced legislation to break the defiance campaign, which started off as a peaceful defiance of unjust law, such as segregated railway stations and post offices. They introduced legislation which, which gave the state the power to order people to be flogged. Uh, there was then the bannings of the ANC and the Communist Party and the PAC and so on, uh, the bannings of people, uh, detention without trial, torture, listings of people so that they couldn't be quoted. Uh, the National Party, instead of trying to accommodate black political aspirations, which were entirely legitimate, tried to crush them with ever more draconian security laws in the Institute chronicled all of this in great detail and pointed out time and time again that all of these attempts to crush black opposition to the apartheid system were futile. You couldn't do it. They didn't listen. They only started listening when in a sense it was too late because these organizations, as you mentioned, the ANC had gone into exile. It couldn't operate lawfully within South Africa. So it went into the waiting arms of the South African Communist Party in Lusaka. And of course, the Russians had their own uh, interest in, 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 in the whole affair. And it was very significant that in 1976, after very large numbers of school children fled from Soweto and other black townships to neighboring states and eventually to the US and the UK, the only organization that had the structures to receive them, although they were all black consciousness uh, supporters, followers of Steve Biko, but the only organization with the structures around the world to receive them was the ANC. And they wound up in, uh, in training camps in the Soviet Union and came back with AK-47s to prosecute or to help the ANC prosecute the the people's war. So the, the National Party was entirely short-sighted and stupid in the way it handled the growing opposition to its policies among black people, whether that opposition was violent or non-violent. So John, in the beginning of the conversation, I mentioned your book, Between Two Fires, which I think is a very apt metaphor to describe your own work, but also the position that the Institute has taken over many decades. And one of the lines that really uh, struck me was, uh, you said on page 243, the lesson I drew from this was clear. If something is wrong in principle, you oppose it in principle, and you fight to win. You don't accept the premise of government interference and then bargain for the best deal you can get. We did not rest on our laurels. Um, so, you know, I think that, that that line really describes uh, the approach that we've taken uh, as an organization. But maybe, I mean, I'm sure our viewers and listeners are well familiar with all of the failings of the ANC government. 
But once in power, post the transition, um, you know, we saw the initial period of the Mandela administration was the reconstruction and development program, which was very redistributionist. Um, but once Thabo Mbeki started to assert his control over the party and over the apparatus of the state from about 1997 or so, uh, that was when he um, became president of the ANC. Um, you then saw a kind of a period of liberalization, the GEAR program was implemented, um, and you know many of the policies that uh, the Institute had been advocating for, at least in the economic realm, starting to, to be implemented. Do you think that's a, a fair characterization of, of, of that period uh, under the Mbeki administration? And uh, how did the, the Institute start to kind of uh, reposition itself in relation to the, the, the kind of the new regime? I think right from the start, the Institute was opposed to key aspects of ANC policy, um, especially the racial legislation, which predated Thabo Mbeki. I think it was introduced while Mr. Mandela was still president, the, uh, the Black Economic Empowerment legislation. I mean, that was, that was the outcome of a commission led by uh, Sora Ramaphosa. There was also the employment equity legislation. So pretty early on, the ANC started putting racial legislation onto the statute book. And the Institute opposed this from the word go. And of course, from the word go, we opposed the arms deal, uh, seeing in that the beginnings of the corruption that has plagued the country ever since. So we found ourselves in opposition to the ANC's key racial policies. And we also, of course, saw that these racial policies were more and more an example of an increasingly interfering state. In 1995 or 1996, when the final South African constitution was due to be certified by the Constitutional Court in terms of the constitutional principles that had earlier been adopted, the Institute uh, argued against their certification because we argued that uh, the Bill of Rights, Chapter 2 of the South African Constitution, should be a shield for citizens against an intrusive state, but that the horizontal application of the Bill of Rights and the entrenchment in the Bill of Rights of socioeconomic rights were not so much uh, means of shielding the individual from the state, but a sword in the hands of the state. The whole problem of an increasingly interfering, officious, bureaucratic, and inevitably corrupt state dates back to the incorporation of a very strong and powerful state in the constitution itself. And we oppose that right from the start. And although some people have said we moved away from the traditional position of the Institute by doing that, I don't believe for a second that we did so. And in fact, sitting right next to me in the Constitutional Court while the hearing was taking place was Helen Sussman, who agreed very strongly with us 
that the 1996 constitution was fundamentally flawed in giving too much power to the state. And that would apply whether whoever was running that state, the ANC or anyone else. Yeah, so Isaiah Berlin spoke about the difference between negative liberty and positive liberty, negative liberty being freedom from uh, unjust infringements on your rights by the state or uh, another party. Um, But positive liberty is freedom too, but that, as you explained, empowers the state. Um, And so in a way, the constitutional framework that was the outcome of the negotiated the negotiated transition was kind of this mixed bag this muddle of of these two uh, different conceptions of of freedom Isaiah Bernan I don't think would have been too happy with the uh, 1996 constitution and I think he would have probably said well I told you so looking at what has subsequently happened with the ANC government taking on more and more and more and more powers to interfere in the private domain, whether it's private individual rights or or business or anywhere else. And of course, we know from the National Democratic Revolution that the ultimate objective is a communist state. I don't think the ANC has lost sight of that as its ultimate objective. It is simply biding its time and waiting for the opportunity to take the next step forward. All of which means, of course, that it's necessary to be as vigilant against this crowd of people in power as the as the Institute was vigilant against the previous people in power. Okay, so what about race-based legislation that you mentioned? Um, the Institute took an actively oppositional stance in relation to the BE framework, which in many respects it was quite an unpopular position to take, but consistent with uh, those principles of individual liberty and non-racialism, which the Institute has uh, stood for since, uh, since its inception. So um, what was the kind of the flack that the Institute took uh, for, for taking that stance? Well, <laughs> we got a lot of flack. Uh, <laughs> from all sorts of people, uh, including some people in business that thought uh, it was quite wrong of us to oppose this legislation. But, you know, we opposed it not simply on grounds of principle that uh, racial discrimination didn't suddenly become acceptable because blacks were doing it against whites when it was previously unacceptable because whites were doing it against blacks. I mean, that was the principal issue. But we knew from our researchers, you referred to the silent revolution, we knew from our researchers that what actually played a key role in breaking down the entire apartheid system was the rapid rates of economic growth. This country grew at an average annual rate of 6% in the 1960s. So that by 1970, the surplus of labor among the white population had dried up. That meant that the country had to increasingly allow black people to move up the job ladder. So that was the beginning of the process of the erosion of the industrial color bar. It was the high rates of growth that broke down the industrial color bar. And we took the view that if we wanted to get rid of the remnants of 
apartheid in the workplace after 1994. The best way to do it was to pursue very, very rapid rates of economic growth because there would be no choice for what was left of racial discrimination in the business community to get rid of racial barriers, to enable black people to perform jobs previously close to them because there weren't any whites to perform them. And of course, if you were going to allow black people into those jobs, you needed to spend a lot more money, time and effort and intellectual firepower on industrial training as well as on education. So we saw not only a principled objection to discriminatory laws continuing with a boot on the other foot, so to speak, but a pragmatic, practical issue, get rid of apartheid by repeating much faster rates of economic growth. And that would be the end of it, finally. One of the things that characterized the apartheid period was also the systematic deprivation of property rights, forced removals, uh, affected uh, many black people. And the remedies that have been put forward uh, by the government and, and by other parties is that we need expropriation with our compensation. We need to uh, dilute the property rights protections that exist in the constitution, specifically section 25. Um, and the Institute has again opposed this on principled and pragmatic grounds. Uh, the principle being that you shouldn't violate the sanctity of, of people's rights to ownership. Um, the pragmatic being that this would undermine investor confidence and would have a damaging effect on economic growth. Um, could you explain the, uh, the history of the Institute and its defense of property rights? Well, the Institute uh, strongly opposed the uh, attempts, uh, successful in most cases by the National Party, to get rid of the remnants of African freehold rights. There were a few places in the country where black people in urban areas for historical reasons still had freehold property rights. The National Party tried to remove those. We opposed that on the grounds that it was discriminatory, but also on the grounds that if you wanted people to build up stable family life in urban areas where they worked and lived, they had to have the right to own property. We also opposed forced removals because they were inhuman. Um, they involved massive coercion in uprooting people from their homes in rural areas or in cities and dumping them in much, much poorer parts of the country in the 10 so-called homelands. But it also meant removing people from property where they had lived for generations, so-called black spots, as they were called, which were officially known as poorly situated, scheduled and released areas. In other words, land which black people owned or occupied outside the homelands. So we opposed forced removals, we opposed removal of property rights because it was coercive and because it was discriminatory. And because if you want a stable society, people need to be able to own property. But of course, we were also very well aware that uh, whatever the rhetoric might be, that the removal of property rights, whether with or without compensation, is yet another step on the road to 
the communist state that the ANC and its allies in the Communist Party and no doubt many in Kosatu also have in mind. They, they want a state where everything is in the ownership of the state, water rights, mining rights, and property rights, so that everybody then in some way or another becomes dependent on the state. That's how communist parties maintain themselves in power. And I have no doubt that the expropriation without compensation campaign at the moment has as its ultimate objective the extinction of all private property rights and their vestment in the state. You will then own property, you will get a farming license, you will get an occupation license, all depending on whether the state approves of you or not. And John, do you think that liberals perhaps were premature in their celebrations of the inclusion of the Bill of Rights in the Constitution that you know, maybe they thought, okay, well, the big battle has been won here and have maybe taken their eye off of some of the, the dangers that have been represented by the ANC? Well, I must confess to being in two minds about that because uh, it's undoubtedly a huge step forward that uh, South Africa has a, a, judicial, a justiciable Bill of Rights that rights of free speech and uh, rights of due process and so on are guaranteed by the constitution. That was not the case prior to 1994. That's a huge step forward uh, that fundamental rights are now protected in South Africa. And we must all be very, very grateful that the liberals, uh, both within the ANC, there were some at the time, and liberals in other organizations played such an important part in the constitutional negotiations after 1990 in getting into the South African constitution, many very important liberal ideas, uh, the separation of powers, the independence of the judiciary being among them. Uh, the battle was not left to the Marxists. But at the same time, we do have the problem that the Bill of Rights also empowers the state. Um, so I have an ambivalent view of the Constitution, but I would much rather have entrenched rights, along with the disadvantage of entrenched socioeconomic rights, than no Bill of Rights at all. Had there been a Bill of Rights, the National Party would not have been able to do all the damage it did during its uh, years of rule. No, absolutely. Uh, so, John, uh, just as we bring this conversation to a close, I wanted to reflect on the last page uh, of your biography. And you say that more than 50 years ago, when I joined the Battle of Ideas as a schoolboy, the ruling party and prevailing ideology seemed monolithic and impregnable, but they were not. The NP was compelled to abandon its own ideology. The ANC will have to do likewise. It will eventually have to liberalize economically, just as the NP had to liberalize. Even the communists in the ANC and the government will find themselves having to search for pragmatic solutions. The question is whether they can be prevented from doing more damage before they begin the retreat from revolutionary ideology into liberal pragmatism. South Africans who want to hasten that day can do so by joining the battle of ideas. Democracy provides the opportunity and free speech the weapon. 
I think that that's a, a, a real rallying cry uh, for ordinary South Africans who might feel a bit despondent about where South Africa finds itself at the moment. And I wanted to maybe take this opportunity to give you the last word um, to maybe provide some encouragement for those who are still wanting to, to see a, a more liberal democratic future for South Africa, one which is, is prosperous and where uh, individuals are allowed to, to flourish and to lead lives of their choosing. There's a huge amount of despondency around, David, as you well know with people immigrating if they possibly can, that's not an option for the great majority of us. It's not an option for the great majority of us to move to the Western Cape either. Um, you know, you don't win battles unless you fight them. And there is a huge and very important and powerful South African tradition. Uh, liberalism is South Africa's oldest uh, political ideology. It triumphed over huge odds in the past in simply staying there, staying put, getting important liberal ideas entrenched in the constitution. Organizations such as the Institute are valiantly engaged in the battle of ideas. I don't know whether we are going to win, but the point is you have to keep on fighting. Um, and we are fighting and we, over the last 25 years, there have been some successes. The judiciary would have much, much less independence than is the case at the moment had the ANC had its way with legislation which the Institute was able to block. The expropriation without compensation legislation would by now be on the statute book without the efforts of the Institute and others but predominantly ourselves, to block that legislation. They'll, they'll still come with it um, when they feel that they have a better opportunity of getting it enacted. But so far, we have stalled it. We've stalled the national health insurance system. And of course, in addition to the Institute and a couple of other traditional English language organizations mainly, there are a whole new range of, of Afrikaans organizations, Sakelicha, AfriForum, Solidarity, which have joined the broadly liberal campaign in prosecuting the battle of ideas. So liberalism, as far as organizational liberals are concerned, is stronger now than it was in 1994. And this is a very, very good uh, development. And we have to fight even harder if we want to win. John Kane Berman, thank you very much for joining me on Solutions with David Ansara. If you're watching on YouTube, please do give this video a like and subscribe to the channel. And if you're listening on your preferred podcast platform, please do leave a five-star review and subscribe on that platform as well. It really helps the show to grow. My name is David Ansara. Until next time, take care.